All right. Uh, let's talk about messes today. The ones that we make, the ones that we find. Everybody ready? Uh, God is good in the mess. Someone say amen. Yeah, he's, he's good to us. His grace is sufficient. It's more than enough, as we sang earlier. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, successful failures <laughs> uh, today. And, and what I want you to do is, as, you, as we kind of get going, I want you to think back in your life. What is, what is one of your favorite successes that started out as a miserable failure in your life? Uh, t- share that with someone next to you. Preach to someone next to you. Tell them that story. Something that started out bad turned out good. The lemons that turned into lemonade. Can I stop now? Is everybody picking up what I'm putting down? (laughs) Tell that story. I'll assume that the people not talking have never experienced failure. Uh, They're like, move on, pastor, this is not me. All right, I heard some stories happening. Can I share a quick one of mine? Uh, I've been married to my wife, Eleanor, not long enough, uh, but almost 32 years. Uh, It didn't start well. You want to hear about it? Uh, We were uh, basically set up by my sister to go on a date, and uh, skipping over some of those specifics, uh, uh, there was a phone call that was basically going to set up the the date that we were going to go on. Um, And so... uh, I don't know who called who, but the, the phone call started, and uh, soon into the phone call, I was letting Eleanor know just how lucky she was to be going on a date <laughs> with this, right? I mean, I was a sophomore. She was just this little freshman. Um, I had, you know, stooped to, you know, to say yes to her ask, and um, I guess I was apparently laying it on pretty thick because... Uh, very shortly into our phone call, she said something to this effect, you're really full of yourself, aren't you? (laughs) To to which I didn't have a reply. I wasn't prepared for that. It wasn't in the script. Uh, And I said, well, maybe we could talk later. And I hung up the phone. I turned to my roommate who was in our room, and I just said, you will not believe what this little freshman girl just said to me. And uh, uh, he said, what? And I said, she said that I was full of myself. He said, you are. And I said, oh, uh, and I was like, I can't believe this. I got to go on a date with her. But in the moments that kind of passed after that, I was like, hey, wait a minute. I kind of like that. I like having someone tell me, uh, you know, when I need some change. Uh, and so uh, I, I picked up the phone. I dialed her back. And I said, hey, can we start over again? And she was kind enough to say, okay, do better. But yeah, we can start over again. We talked for five hours that night. Just couldn't stop um, laughing, and, and it was the beginning of what has been, uh, you know, uh, the better part of my life's love. Um, other than God, she's the greatest gift that I've ever been given, and, uh, but it didn't start well. I would it surprise you to know that uh, modern era um, life is littered with successful failures just like that, things that didn't begin <laughs> as they should or would, uh, but ended up being okay. Uh, I, I, I did a quick Google search. Isn't Google fun? It's fun, isn't it? Um, I, I, hey, tell me the things that worked out that didn't start so great. And I uh, got all these lists. Uh, I was surprised by some of the results. Let me share three of them with you. First of all, did you know that Post-it notes didn't start out that great? Yeah, Post-it notes. Anybody used one before? Yeah, they, uh, they were the result of this guy. His name was uh, Dr. Spencer Silver trying to create like a, a super glue. He was trying to create the, the, the greatest, strongest adhesive that had ever been made. 
and he failed miserably. His calculations in chemistry were wrong, and so he created this super weak glue, right? And he's like, he's, he's in the lab, and he's with his friend Art, uh, his buddy Arthur Fry is sitting there, and he's like, look, I spent all this time and all this research and all this money to create this lousy glue. What are we going to do with it? And Arthur, Christian, goes to a church where they use bookmarks to mark the pages in their hymnals. And he's like, hey, we're always losing those things. They keep falling out every time we open a book. Um, what if we put your <laughs> lousy glue on the back of some bookmarks and we put them in books and have them kind of stick there as, as, a, as a better reminder of where we need to go? He's like, oh, we can try it. The church loved it. In fact, they loved it so much that these blank bookmarks that they just kind of created as a, you know, as a, a, a whatever, a, a template, a, a beta, um, they started writing on them, like, like notes for that hymn or, or things that they wanted to remember about certain things. And, and they stayed in the books. And Arthur and uh, uh, what's his face, Spencer, got together and said, hey, maybe we're on to something. What if we made these into pads? And they went to 3M. They got the... Uh, they got the, uh, what do they call that, the copyright or whatever, the patent, thank you very many. And, uh, and in 1979, 3M started producing post-it notes, and it was a mistake that they're even in existence, and they've made millions, if not billions of, of dollars off of little squares that people stick to their foreheads. And, uh, here's another one, chocolate chip cookies. Who knows the story about chocolate chip cookies? They're a mistake. There was this lady, her name was Ruth Graves Wakefield. She worked at the Toll House Inn between Boston and Plymouth, somewhere in Massachusetts, and she made these delicious chocolate cookies. She was out of cocoa powder on this particular night that the inn had them on their menu. She had to deliver some form of this cookie, and so she did some you know, factoring in her head. She thought, maybe if I take this semi-sweet Nestle chocolate bar and I just break up, you know, the chocolate bar into fine pieces, the chocolate will melt and I'll have the same effect as my cocoa powder. They did not. They got soft and gooey and she looked at them as they came out and thought, oh no, I've ruined the cookies but I've got nothing else to serve. And so she put them on a plate and threw them in front of her guests and they loved them. So much so that they became the house recipe. She never made her other chocolate chip cookies again. She just kept breaking up Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bars into her cookie batter to the point where it got so famous, it got back to Nestle himself or whoever was in charge of the company at the time, and they brokered a deal with this woman. If you let us put your Toll House cookie recipe on the side of our chocolate bars, we'll give you all the chocolate you could ever use. She made that deal. The recipe's still there. Nestle got, uh, got so, uh, you know, uh, so, so much demand for chocolate bars to make these cookies uh, that they, they finally uh, got tired of trying to figure out ways that they could form chocolate bars in small enough squares that they could be broken up. Let's just chop them up before they ever get to the customer. And the chocolate chip was born in 1939. And they are now in the most delicious cookies that God has ever blessed the planet with. <laughs> that is indisputable. We don't have to talk further. Send me your emails. All you like to talk to me about are my food choices. Anyway, uh, last one. This is my favorite one. Velcro. Do you know how Velcro came about? The inventor of Velcro, a guy named uh, George de Mistral, a Swiss engineer, was walking his dog. The dog ran into the woods, and as furry dogs run into the woods, they collect burrs. He went in there to get them, and of course, the burrs got all over his pants, and he was so frustrated. It was a horrible dog walk. Bad boy, right? 
But he comes back to his house, and he's, he's picking out these birds. He's like, huh, that's weird. I've never really looked at one of these before. He put them under a microscope, and he figured out that God had created this plant with these little hooks in their seeds so that when they fell off, they would attach to whoever they were stuck to, and that would drop off, and it would continue to you know, pollinate or whatever, create the plants. That's how they spread themselves. But he's like, that's interesting. What if I took those little hooks and I put them on a piece of fabric of some kind? Wouldn't it stick to other things? And Velcro was born from a bad dog walk. Don't you love those stories? Mistakes happen. Messes occur. Sometimes we're the author. Sometimes we're the recipient. But the choice in how we go through them And what the results are at the end of them is entirely almost up to our approach in them. Failures, thankfully, can and often do produce successes. Sufferings can and do often produce healing. This is the idea that we've uh, um, used um, a word to basically describe. It's called grace. Where bad things happen, good things are the result. We don't deserve the good things. In a broken world, we deserve no good, but God continues to give it. Uh, Another thing, as as we kind of get going this morning, you ever notice how often suffering uh, has to occur for freedom or redemption to be given to someone else? Like almost every hero, hero story involves a hero having to sacrifice himself for the sake of the safety or the the success or betterment of those uh, that he's the hero of, right? So Iron Man dies in Endgame. Sorry if you hadn't gotten through the Marvel uh, you know, Universe stuff yet, but uh, he dies for the sake of the survival of the planet. Um, Tom Hanks dies in Saving Private Ryan, right? And tells Matt Damon to earn this. And then Christianity, it, its entire basis is the Son of God coming and dying, suffering, so that the healing of humanity can occur through his payment on the cross. Paul, who we're going to study uh, today, his letter to the Philippians, he wrote to another church in a place called Corinth. Uh, He wrote these famous words to them in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, his son, to be sin who knew no sin. He took a perfect being, the son of God, and he imputed our sin on him. And that sin was on Jesus. It was the worst part of the cross. Certainly the physical suffering was horrible. I would not wish that on anybody. But the worst part of the cross experience for Jesus was he who, be, who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that in him, in what he's accomplished for us on the cross, we might through faith become the righteousness of God. Failures by grace become successes. Suffering by grace becomes healing. Today as we continue our study in this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Philippians, we get to the part where Paul is probably answering the question that was asked of him in the letter that he's responding to. Don't forget that this is a thank you note. Paul's in prison, probably in Rome, almost certainly in Rome. 
He's hanging out there, and one of the Philippians, a, a member of the church named Epaphroditus, has brought uh, a gift from the Philippian church to Paul for his aid as he's in prison. Probably with that gift was a little note. Does anybody ever send a gift with like a card on it or something like that? There was probably a note. And, and just like us, when we text or get on the phone or come and see someone you know, uh, at their house or something like that, what's the first question out of your mouth? Hey, how are you? It's just a, a human thing. We, we just we're concerned about the well-being of those that we're hanging out with when we write them, when we see them. Hey, what's up? How's it going? How are you? This is what Paul's responding to. Somewhere in that note, we can assume that the Philippians are like, hey, prison, how's it going? How are you? And so in the verses that we cover today, Paul answers that question. We're going to find out that he's doing amazingly well for a guy in prison. In fact, so well that he skips all the details, all of the, it's cold in here, food's terrible. Uh, I never get to go outside. He skips all the whining, and he just gets right to the encouraging stuff. And he says, look what God is doing up here in prison. Paul has a different perspective. He understands that what seems like a failure can be an amazing success. What, what is actual suffering can produce a, uh, an incredible healing in the lives of those around the one who suffers. Today we're gonna learn a couple things from Paul's testimony in this answer to the question, how you doing? Uh, hopefully we're gonna walk out of here and we're gonna be committed to looking for what God is doing in our tough times. Common theme of messages here at your church, life breaks, things go wrong, what do you do with them? You got choices, you can let the the craters of your life crater you, that's a choice. Or you could choose in those moments where the storms howl and life falls apart to try to make some chocolate chip cookies out of it. To maybe see if there's not a little Velcro in this bird up dog. Uh, to find out if there's a different use for what you had hoped would be but was not. Make some post-it notes. That's what Paul does. He ends up in prison, he's like, well, I wonder what God's gonna do in this. Look for what God is doing in your tough times. I, I read a book, uh, it's probably 30 years ago now, by a guy named Henry Blackaby, and it's called Experiencing God. It's basically seven principles. The first one is this, God is always at work around you. He's always doing something. Does everybody believe that about God? Doesn't take breaks, he's not you know, uh, absent in your struggles, he's there. He's allowed them, uh, uh, and, and certainly it may not have been his, you know, his chief hope for you, sin has its consequences, but he is willing as a God of grace to take the messes that you've either formed or been subjected to and use them for his glory and your good. He's always at work. Another one of the principles is that he wants you to join him in his work, no matter what's going on in life. Hang with him, go with him in the things that he's going to do. Look for what God is doing in your tough times. And then secondly, we're gonna talk about this. Stay focused on what matters most in their midst. I don't know, I don't have a pie chart that shows this. I, I, uh, that'd be cool. Everything's, everything can be a pie chart, right? We can show some percentage of whatever. But I think like nine-tenths of life is focus. That's completely arbitrary. But can everybody see that pie chart? Whatever I'm focused on is shaping my outcomes, 
my directions. If I'm focused on everything, you know, Eeyore-like, it's my birthday. You know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, who's with me? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah, if, if everything, if my focus is on all the bad, then that's going to shape my outcomes. But if my focus is on, hey, what can we do with this? What is God up to? Where is he in these circumstances? It changes how I live. Anybody ever been in a parking garage, forgot where you put your car? And it was empty when you left, but it's full now? Anybody been in this parking garage? What a panic, right? And there's like 16 you know, vehicles that look like yours. Have you figured out the hack for that? It's on your key fob. What do you hit? Panic. Uh, I can't find my car. <laughs> it's a panic button, right? And what does your car do if you do that? Starts honking. And where do you go towards? The honking. How dumb would it be if we hit the panic button and walk the other way? Probably there's a human out there who's done that. But uh, that's not the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise is to find what you're looking for and to follow the signs that will lead you there. As you walk through whatever you're facing, uh, the panic butter button in, in the spiritual life is hitting our knees and asking God to show me, lead me, guide me, enable me, encourage me, walk me to the things that you have for me. All right, we'll talk about those two things and go home. Everybody cool? Is anybody cool? All right, drink your coffee. I'm, I'm caffeinated. Come on, here we go. Paul says this in verse uh, 12 of chapter 1 of Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. They knew what had recently happened to him. He'd been imprisoned. He was in prison. It's why they had written and sent the gift. And so Paul says, hey, guys, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance, move the gospel forward. Not just this you know, uh, most recent thing, but everything that has occurred up to this recent thing has all gotten me to the point where I'm here doing what God has for me so that his gospel moves forward. How great is that? Uh, just so we're clear, the Apostle Paul is probably you know, uh, in the pantheon of Christianity in the Mount Rushmore of those who have overcome adversity. Can everybody agree with me on that? Like you and I face things, he faced things. Like he gets to write in 2 Corinthians, and again in this letter, I forgot this was here, he actually gives uh, his tough times resume. You wanna hear it? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Not real great with math, math but I think that's 39. Is that correct? And so five times 39, are we talking 195 lashes that went across this guy's back that left scars? Paul's back was hamburger, people. All for the sake of his pursuit of Jesus. Five times. He says, it got better when it came to being beaten with rods. I only had that three times. Uh, once I got stoned, not that kind. People actually threw rocks at me, and if you heard or read that story, you know that those who gathered around him to pray thought he was dead. Some scholars even think he might have been, and God resuscitated him. Can't, can't prove that, but, but they threw rocks at him, as was the custom back then, to kill him. So five whippings, three beatings, one stoning, and he's just getting going. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the first century adrift at sea. No beacons, no, no uh, you know, inflatable life vests like you get on your planes, right? He's hanging on to some piece of a ship floating in the Mediterranean for a, a day and a night before he finds solid ground. On frequent journeys, here we go, here comes the danger list. I had dangers from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from, that's the Jews, from the Gentiles. I found danger in the city. I found danger outside the city in the wilderness. I found danger in the water. I found danger from false brothers and in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. Is everybody picking up what Paul's putting down? It's been a rough ride. And then he speaks to the Corinthians, who, by the way, were a piece of work as a church. Read their letters. What a mess. So grateful that churches aren't like that anymore. (laughs) Praise be to God, not ours. Amen. But he writes this as he finishes his list, and he says, apart from other things, which he doesn't have time to list, apparently, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I've had this privilege to go out and plant all these churches, but most of the back of your Bibles, Bibles are letters to these churches as they make their mistakes and Paul seeks to correct them. He's like, I started this whole basically um, Gentile church thing over the past 30 years. And my heart aches for all the Christians who are in these churches. Paul been through some stuff, everybody with me? But here, as he nears his end, by the way, he's going to end in front of Caesar. Uh, uh, Antiquity tells us that he dies a martyr for his faith. But as he nears his end, still bright side in everything in life. Hey, man, this latest thing, it's not the lashes, it's not the beatings, it's not the shipwrecks. But this latest thing, this imprisonment, it's working out pretty good. I like to think that uh, Paul had a different set of glasses on. I wear glasses half since I was in seminary because the computer took my eyesight. Uh, I had to read a bunch and my eyeballs went, nope. So I wear these now. Who put put a pair of these? I can see you, kind of. Anybody put a pair of these on this morning? Take them off. Here we go. Can you see me any good right now? Brandon, you can't see Jack, can you? uh, These things help us see. Now, put them back on. When, we, when we're born, we're given a set of lenses. Those of you who aren't you know, bad eyesight people, you're like, I don't have to wear them. You got them. Spiritually, everybody's got them. Sin gives us a view of life. It makes us selfish. Uh, it leads us to panic and over-control when things go bad. Uh, that's the, the lens that we've been given, the world lens. But what Paul has put on after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was blinded, by the way. I think that's kind of cool. Like, uh, it, it, I, I can't read this into the text. Please don't say that I'm saying this. I, I'll deny it. But uh, uh, I love that he was blinded by the light, right? It was almost like we've got to reset how you see things, Paul. And, and I'm going to give you a, a different view of things. <sighs> I'm going to let you see things through the gospel lens, give you some gospel gogs. So that when you look at life, it's not just about you and self and control and all those things that are inherent in us because of sin. You've been freed from that, and I've given you this ability, if you'll choose it, to look at life's situations through the cross and what God's trying to accomplish 
through the gospel that you've been given. Uh, It's easy to put on the lens that we started with. The challenge in the Christian life is to put these on and leave them on. Because then we can walk through things seeing what God has for us. He says, I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is in Christ. Okay, probably heard this preached before, but just let me hit it for the people who haven't. Prison back then wasn't always like prison like we have. Like in Philippi, Paul and Silas were in an actual jail. There was a jailer. Uh, They were singing songs. The doors flew open. It's part of the Philippian story that that Paul started in jail, okay? But here in Rome, it was not a jail. It was a house arrest. We know this because the imperial guard is being strapped to Paul on a daily basis. That's basically how they'd watch you, where there's no bars and doors. Uh, There's guards. And so guards would come in, and they would take shifts, and they would sit next to the Apostle Paul. I'm picturing the first few visits not going well. Uh, Romans uh, uh, were not fond of their prisoners. I'm guessing there was abusive language and maybe even uh, hostile actions towards Paul. But he just continued to love those who were next to him, to pray for his enemies, right? Uh, to speak truth. And over time, I don't know how long, but some of them started listening. And some of them apparently trusted Jesus, and their next shift became the next opportunity for Paul to disciple these newfound followers of Jesus Christ. And these guys went back to the locker room and started talking to the other guys who thought Paul was crazy, and the gospel spread throughout the imperial guard. Now, not all of them believe, just like maybe not all of you believe, but the gospel was preached to a bunch of people. Let me just put it uh, clearly for us, that would never go to a church Everybody gets that, right? Like everybody was freaked out. Oh no, what's going to happen in COVID? We're going to have to shut the churches down. You know how many people started watching church online during COVID? I don't. But uh, I'm guessing there was a bunch of people who would never come to the box but found themselves checking us out online. Maybe you're still with us. Hi, how's it going? In every failure or every suffering, God wants to redeem and bring success and healing in some way. And so Paul's like, I'm not imprisoned. (laughs) The guys who come in and are strapped to me, they're imprisoned and they're hearing the gospel. And God's making a difference. I love it that he says the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Who's all the rest? I don't know. It's a vague statement, right? Who's all the rest? that my imprisonment is for Christ. If you skip down and come back on the week that we talk about this, but as Paul says his goodbyes in this letter in chapter four, verse 22, here's what he says. In verse 22, he says, all the saints here in Rome greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, I don't have like, you know, the direct lines to this, but what if, just what if, one of these imperial guards had a shift at the palace and started talking to someone there who talked to someone there, uh, who talked to a member of the royal family, who who talked to someone who was way up in the government of Rome. Everybody understands that in our history, Christianity became a worldwide religion because of the Roman Empire. Everybody gets that, right? Maybe you don't. And the work, perhaps, was seeded through this first church in Rome. 
Maybe even through Paul talking to some Roman uh, soldiers who worked in the palace and things started to spread. I don't know. But there were those in the house of Caesar who were saints of Jesus Christ. So look for what God's doing in in tough times. Can I give you three things? Look for what God wants to do through you in your tough times. Paul said, all right, I'm strapped to soldiers. How does God want to use this? Oh, I'll share the gospel with them. Look for what God wants to do through you in your tough times. Are you looking for that? Or are you just seeing the tough times? Secondly, look for what God wants to work in you through your tough times. Read your Bibles, people, and find out, once again, that God appoints the struggles of our lives as classrooms. He wants to teach us things about himself that we'd never know otherwise, except that we went through this. That's why Paul, as he's writing to his friends in Rome, the same church that uh, he's referring to in uh, the Philippian letter, he says, not only that, but we who are together with you in ministry, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. When we struggle, there's things happening in us. Look for the ways that God wants to teach you, the things that he wants to do in you through your struggles, through your hard times. And then look for who God wants to inspire by your tough times. Look what it says in verse 14. He says this, and most of the brothers having become confident, speaking of the church in Rome, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, I took my father-in-law to the airport uh, this past week. He's hanging out with uh, uh, my brother-in-law in in Kentucky for the next couple weeks. Eleanor and I are going to be uh, empty nesters. But uh, uh, I just love my father-in-law, Byron. You hear me talk about him. Uh, uh, Almost 91 years old, walks with a walker, um, and insists in every possible way uh, that he can to remain autonomous. So refuses the wheelchair, even though he could desperately use one as he walks through the airport. Shuffles along, right, uh, with his carry-on in front of him that he, you know, uh, intends to put in the overhead bin, all right? And I wake up every once in a while, 53 years young, I'm like, oh, oh, so sore. And he shuffles in to make his own breakfast again. And what's my... Take away from that. Shut up, Mark. You got nothing to whine about. If dad can do it, I can too. The same thing's happening in this prison. Paul is strapped between two guards, incarcerated, no freedom, but he's making the most of it for the glory of God. The church in Rome sees that and they're like, well, if he can do it in there, maybe we can do it out here. And they start sharing Jesus Christ. Everybody look at me. You cannot not communicate. Did you hear me? You are always saying something to those around you with the way that you live, the words that you use. You cannot not communicate. And let me, I haven't said this yet. I know storms are hard. Been through a few myself. I know it's tough. I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying that you're going to need days for breaks and stuff like that. But as you heal in and of yourself, look for the ways that God wants to work through you in your tough times. Look for the things that God wants to work in you through your tough times. And look for the ways that God wants to inspire others 
through the choices that you make in your tough times. Last thing is this, stay focused on what matters most in tough times. Now, Paul just got done saying, hey, good news. People in Rome are getting all courageous in sharing the faith. But it's not all good news. Some are doing it for the wrong reasons. He says, some indeed, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. There's a certain portion of the church that has rightly interpreted Paul's imprisonment. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He's just defending the faith. He is a victim of the Roman government, all right? Uh, He is uh, sitting here, and and we're going to stay with him in his imprisonment, and we're going to continue to preach his gospel as we're inspired by his imprisonment. Are you with me? Is anybody with me? Okay, good. I'm almost done. Stay with me. And Paul says, man, thank, thank God for those who are doing it, uh, this preaching of the gospel for the right reasons. But there's some out there, and I'm so glad. Here comes the sarcasm part again. I'm so glad we live in an age where the church does not uh, eat itself and, and, and compare itself to other churches and, and that you know, people aren't competitive within the, the Christian world. Isn't it great that we live in an age where Christians aren't you know, looking down their noses at other Christians and we're all staying together as one big team? Isn't that awesome that we live in this age? Can I stop this right now? Is everybody picking up what I'm putting down? I get so crazy frustrated over the way that Christians are the stumbling blocks of Christ. It should not be this way. Listen, you don't have to go like too far into your Bibles to see how sin has impacted the competitive nature of humanity. Two brothers get together to worship God. They bring sacrifices. One is received, one is rejected, and the brother who is rejected doesn't go home and think, maybe I need to do some things between me and God. He goes to his brother in a field and kills him. Why? Because he won and I deserve to win. I'm most important, said Cain in the murder of his brother Abel. And the the human race has been doing that ever since. Wars, neighborhoods, churches, me over you. I'm right, you're wrong. That's what was going on with this group who were preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. They uh, took a very dim view of Paul's imprisonment. See, I told you, he's a crook. He's probably done it. Whatever it is he's in there for, he's guilty. We should have never trusted him. In fact, you should all trust in me, and here I come to preach the gospel that Paul taught me. Yeah. So once again, Paul in prison has this choice. Can he focus on all these bozos who are doing the gospel for the wrong reasons and start dressing them down in this letter? You guys need to, you know, know that these, here's their names. It's Bill and Ted and the Excellent Adventure. Uh, It's all these people who are doing the wrong things. No, this is what he does, verse 18. He goes, what then? So there's people out there preaching the gospel, the right gospel. I don't have time to get into that, but I'm I'm not saying that we change our gospel. I'm just saying if people preach the right gospel for the wrong reasons, this is Paul's reaction. So what? So what then? What am I going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Philippi? I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to focus on what God's doing through it despite them. He says, 
Only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I don't care if I win. I don't even particularly care if they win in the court of public opinion. Doesn't matter to me. This isn't about me. It's about the mission, about the gospel moving forward, about him being glorified. So, yeah, I wish they weren't doing it for the wrong reasons. But if the gospel gets preached, win. And praise be to God. Here's the bottom line. If you're taking this little portion of Paul's letter, I hope you're picking up what he's putting down. Don't be cratered by your craters. When stuff comes in life, listen, take the time that you need to heal and breathe and recover and be redeemed, but see them as the opportunities that they are. If life gives you lemons, start cutting them up and make something sweet to drink, baby. That's what we do in life. We're Christians. We understand that God is always at work around us. And so when life messes up, either by our doing or someone else's, and we find ourselves in the troubles that invariably come, we look to God for what he wants to do through them, through me. We look to God for what he wants to do in me as I walk with him through them. We, we look to God for how he wants us to inspire others. And even if things aren't perfect, we trust God. And we focus in on what's most important, which is his glory and his message moving forward. I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. Great book. Uh, he's called The Weeping Prophet. He had a hard job. He came to Israel in a time of its history where they were about to be taken into captivity by a nation called Babylon. Uh, he prophesies, and of course, this wicked nation that has been far from God for far too long uh, just you know, ignores them, and, and, and the calamity comes. The, uh, the book of Lamentations is basically Jeremiah's uh, sad song uh, of how God's judgment has come, come, come upon Israel. But there's these great verses in Lamentations. Uh, Jeremiah, standing in the rubble of the city. Everybody's been taken captive by the Babylonians. He's standing there in, in what looks like a, a, a nuclear wasteland. And, and he says these words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Someone should write that hymn. Someone should write that hymn someday, right? Maybe it'd go like this, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with you, right? Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Great. I know there's more, but I'm, I, I gotta hurry up. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. From the rubble of a city, Jeremiah says those words. He, he comes to the nation of Israel in their captivity. He says these things to them in his, in his book in chapter 29. He says this, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles, everybody who's been taken captive, sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's my instruction from God. Build houses. Live in them. Plant your gardens. And eat the fruit of them. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. What an incredible message for a prophet to give a nation in captivity. And I know it's rough. I know you don't want to be here, but while you're healed, here, build your houses, plant your gardens. 
pray for the city that holds you captive so that God's work might be done. Last thing on Jeremiah. In chapter 18, he has this vision. He goes down to the house where the pots are made. He goes to the potter's house. And uh, he watches as the potter takes the clay and he mashes it up and throws it on the wheel or however they did it back then and starts to form things. And he, he channels what God has for Israel from that vision to them in his next prophecy. He says, uh, this is God, he's the potter. And you are clay in his hands for him to mold into shape as he wishes. Now sometimes it's gonna be just grace upon grace and joy upon joy and you're gonna smile and things are gonna be great. But every once in a while, he's gonna turn things in a different direction. It's gonna be hard. But you have to trust as the clay that the potter knows what he's doing. And you need to stay pliable in his hands. And here's the last thing I wanna leave you with. You have a choice in life. When the craters come, you can crater, get hard in your hearts, let the fires of life um, you know, uh, harden you like this Starbucks mug and form you into a shape that cannot bend. Or you can remain pliable in the hands of your God and go with him and look for him in the stuff of life. I'm guaranteeing you this, there's gonna be times in life when the bottom drops out and don't worry, I'm not gonna drop it because as sure as I drop this thing, it's gonna break and pop your eye out. So I'm not gonna do that. But can everybody agree with me that if I drop this and this from a high space onto a hard ground, this bounces, this breaks. So may you and I put on these glasses and stay moldable in the hands of our God. Will you stand with me as we pray? God, your grace is sufficient. It's more than enough. Would you grant us, God, what we need to face the trials of our lives? Would you help us go beyond that, not just survive them, but thrive within them and honor you through them? Help us to join you in what you're doing. Help us to learn from you uh, the things that you need us to know. Help us to be aware that everybody's watching and the ways that we act will either inspire or dissuade. God, keep us uh, from letting things distract us from what matters most. You, your glory, your gospel going forward. Um, give us that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. That's it. God bless you. Have a great morning. We'll see you next time.